Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the June 6th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest for the full hour is Gloria Mark, UCI professor of informatics, who will talk about her latest book, Attention Span, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness, and Productivity. No, do not, do not confuse this as a self-help text. It's one for you. It's a grounded, helpful read that could turn things around for you. We'll be right back. Don't go away. My guest for the full hour is Gloria Mark, UCI professor of informatics, who will talk about her latest book, Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. It's published by Hanover Square Press. Luckily, there's a few people left with long enough attention spans to write about it. So we can have a little agency to regain and shore up the decline of this capacity and achieve some balance. Gloria Mark is Chancellor's Professor of Informatics at UC Irvine. She completed her master's in biostatistics at the University of Michigan and her PhD from Columbia University in psychology. She was also a Fulbright Scholar and has received an NSF, National Science Foundation, career grant. Gloria Mark has been a visiting senior researcher at Microsoft Research since 2012, from which she draws vital expertise. Her research interest is in understanding the impact of digital media on people's lives, and she is best known for her work in studying people's multitasking mood, behavior, and stress in real-world environments. Her goal is to create a holistic picture of people's technology use using objective measurements combined with other data. Other interests are the future of work and how teams adapt to remote working environments. I love to have her back with those eventual findings. She's published over 200 papers in top journals and conferences in the fields of human computer interactions, HCI might be the shorthand used later, and computer supported cooperative work, and is author of the book, Attention Span and Multitasking in the Digital Age, among others. Her work has been recognized beyond academia She's presented her work at South by Southwest and the Aspen Ideas Festival. Her work has appeared in the popular media, for example, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR, The Atlantic, the BBC, and many others, including here on this show back in 2016. She's bringing her book Attention Span to innumerable podcasts, which she posts, which I say unironically on social media platforms. Even if you hear all the pods, Reading this book is its own important exercise. We're recording this on June 2nd. She comes to us today from Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Gloria Mark. Thank you so much, Claudia, for having me back. Well, I've been really looking forward to this. First, your dedication grounds your readers. It says it all. I'm quoting it to my mother who focused on what is important. End of quote. That's right. She did. 
She did. And, and I learned a lot from her. Well, it's a really accessible, uh, fresh, personable, insightful read. I'm so glad you wrote it. It's helpful that your work is drawing on so many disciplines. And so all of them, uh, and I, I don't mean to be ironic to either, but I had to read this whole book on a PDF on my computer screen. So that that was a little bit of uh, uh, missing the message, but that was that was what I got. So the good news on one level is lots of this was not new to me. The bad news, though, is it's still deeply menacing news. So books like these, where an academic moves to a mainstream audience, I always consider them they're a sort of a warning to the general public. So that's that was your choice. Yes, that was. I mean, you know, I... I do publish for academic audiences, but I thought that everybody is affected by how they use their devices. And I thought that it's really important to spread the message to to a much broader public than academia, because I, I think people can, you know, they, they can improve their lives. People are getting exhausted. They feel overwhelmed. And so I think people are are looking for ways to get out of this this mess that we've gotten into. Yes, and I I want to say Gloria that even I mean even before finishing the book it already put me on a, a digital diet. It's a it you're raising our awareness so immediately in this, and so simply by reading your book we do become more mindful. We do recognize what's taking place in order to increase our capacity, you know, and gain some kind of agency eventually that we'll talk about. So thank you for that. And I, I did try to fend off digital intrusions to continue reading your book. It wasn't easy, but uh, it, the, it is an important exercise. So in your book, you do defined, you define attention and devices that we make uh, and decisions we make about directing it. Do you want to give us that in the opening? Yeah. So you know, attention actually was first defined by William James, who is known as the father of psychology. And the way that James put it, he said, everyone knows what attention is. It's it's being able to focus on, on you know, on a particular thing, being able to selectively focus. So that's true, but William James didn't get the full story because when we focus on something, we have a conscious awareness of what we're focusing on. But there's also so many ways that our attention is captured automatically. So we're we're not selectively choosing what to focus on. For example, when we hear the chime of our a text on our phones, we immediately go to grab our phones or we see a notification on our screens and our attention immediately is drawn to this flashing, blinking light, and we go and click on it. And we do this because it's we've developed a habit to do this. So there are so many ways that our attention is captured automatically and not just consciously. So it's, you know, it's a problem when we're responding to things that aren't in our conscious awareness and that are distracting us from things that we really want to get done. And you really clearly, and and I really want to 
emphasize how accessible this read is, but you very clearly, it's a very kind of a small circuit. You go from, from the brain to our hand to the click on the device. That's, that's the realm where you're putting us in, in this book. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we, we can't help but do these actions of clicking on something. It's like, you know, when we're driving, you can drive, which is automatic. You know, if you're driving down a straight road and we could be talking with a passenger, so our controlled attention is on the conversation. But then a, a, a car cuts us off and immediately we become more conscious of driving. And so our attention switches to, you know, being focused on the road ahead of us. So, you know, we can make these changes in our thinking. And of course, you know, if we see this car that cut us off, we can take an action, right? We can hit the brakes or we can swerve. So it's really we important. We can decide to stop talking. Or we will. Or we turn will off stop the radio talking. or we could, we could start yeah. to turn down those other drags on our attention. Yeah, we and we will. We will stop talking when when your full attention is you know, focused on stopping a collision in front of you. So this will happen. I just wanted to just take one exception because you talk about over the, you know, over the millennia, many of them, over human history, that multitasking was necessary, that our ancestors had to continually monitor the environment for survival because we're talking about this bandwidth getting invaded with you know our motoring around but as multitasking goes i i want to say contribute that i think it's you mentioned that it's really no longer an issue to scan the environment for survival but i think we can take a step back and we have plenty of evidence in our world today where there are certain classes of people certain uh ethnicities that have to be incredibly vigilant all the time. So they oh. do need to be scanning their survival, the yes. scanning environment for survival all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I What I meant by that was, you know, when people were doing hunting and gathering, they would always have to be on the lookout for prey or, you know, they wanted to protect their children as well as being on the lookout for food that they could scavenge. So there, there was a lot of multitasking going, going on there, but I, I do agree in, in today's world, uh, a lot of people have to be very vigilant and, you know, have to be aware of what's in the environment and potential threats. So you shift our, you want to shift our concerns. You mentioned early in the book away from productivity to raising productivity, to raising balance. I wonder though, the data mining at the workplace, that is only ratcheting up. How can we deal with this uh, workplace being at odds with the consideration of, of achieving balance? Because, And you could argue increased balance could actually increase productivity. Yes. So what do I mean by balance? Um, so from a physiological standpoint, the autonomic nervous system has two components, the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. I don't want to go into a lot of detail with it, but I will say that the sympathetic part is concerned with the, the fight or flight 
part of life. And this is, you know, when we get stressed, when we're, you know, facing a conflict, the sympathetic part of our uh, system gets aroused. And the parasympathetic system is known as the rest and digest system. And that's the part that can cause it, calm us. And so by balance, I mean, not having the sympathetic nervous system dominate us. We we don't want to be dominated by stress. We want to be able to think clearly. We we need a little bit of arousal to be productive. You know, we can't be in a complete Zen state, but we don't want to be, we don't want to have too much stress and arousal such that we just can't focus. We can't get anything done. So, you know, we want to think about a balance so that we have just the, the right amount of arousal. Um, and of course, we, we need to feel positive. And we know that when people feel positive, there's lots of research behind this, that, that people can do more. They have a wider choice of actions to take. So if you're in an office environment and you're facing a very difficult colleague, when you feel positive, you have a a wider choice of things that you can do to prevent that conflict from escalating. And it's the same thing when we use our devices, when we feel positive, we we can do more, right? We can be more creative. We can, um, we, we have more mental energy to actually do the job that needs to be done. Gloria, when I read that portion of those areas in the book, it really triggered a workplace experience. I can think exactly a particular day where I, I was, I received from my direct report, my principal investigator, an extremely toxic and insulting round. And I remember at near the, the middle of the afternoon, I could, I knew that that the effect was uh, it did deplete me. It was so stressful. And so we, I think we can all think of those case studies where that that stress depletes the the capacity for for properly reasoning something. And it, it, it did it interfered with my reasoning. And I made a I made a bad choice by the middle of that afternoon that same day. Yes. I mean, we we all have experiences like that. Uh, it's it's just uh, it's natural that we would have these kinds of experiences. It, it's part of life, and that's why it's so important to not get ourselves exhausted in using our devices and in, in exhausted at work. So we have these reserves that we can use for when we face these kinds of difficult situations. Right, and 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 some kind of agency it may not be apparent what that agency would be to to duck from those kinds of assaults but they they are assaulting for those of you who've just joined us my guest is gloria mark uci professor of informatics talking about her latest book attention span a groundbreaking way to restore balance happiness and productivity about how our lives have changed in the digital age as she examines our incredible shrinking attention spans. And when we, you talk about the digital age, you're bringing in though, it's not just digital devices, that there's all kinds of inputs that are stressing us, 
and reducing our attention span. So I, it's very, very comprehensive in what you're, you're covering. Yes, that's right. It's, you know, we're, we, we have computers, phones, tablets. We're, we're also exposed to a broader media environment of TV and film. So we we're getting media, we're being exposed to media in so many different forms. Also in your book, you talk about cognitive resources theory, and uh, you can explain that a little bit. And you do talk about that it doesn't explain everything, but when you give us a bit of a definition there, I want to also ask within cognitive resources theory, does it consider different types of learners uh, that in the tasks that we're taking up there, you know, the visual, the auditory and the kinesthetic learners, does it break it down or is that an off ramp away from what the CRT talks about? So it's a, it's a bit of an off ramp. So, you know, cognitive resource theory simply means that people have a limited amount of mental resources that they use uh, when with their attention. And you could think of it as your attentional capacity. And there are things we do that can build up our capacity, build up our resources, such as getting a good night's sleep. So starting your day with a really good, restful, high quality sleep, plenty plenty of deep sleep. Uh, we can also take good breaks, really good, solid, meaningful breaks. And these are not breaks where you do your email. It's breaks where you really allow your mind to be able to disconnect from your work. And these are these are ways that can replenish our resources. But there are also so many things we do during the day that just deplete our resources. And a lot of these things happen when we're using our devices, such as when we're shifting our attention rapidly between different screens, between different devices, between email, social media, Slack, news sites, and our work. And this, this attention shifting can, can deplete our resources uh, above and beyond what's actually needed to, to do the work. And when you talk about the workplace, you your research benefits from your multicultural exposure to the workplace. You found differences in the German setting versus different settings in the U.S. Do you want to give us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this comes from my experience of having worked in Germany before starting UCI. And it was a it was a very different kind of job that I had. It it was a research job. And I was able to focus on, you know, one or just a few research uh projects. And, you know, I I didn't have to I didn't have separate other kinds of tasks. Uh, I wasn't teaching, I wasn't, you know, doing committee work. So it was, you know, I used to call it jokingly a, a life of luxury because I was able to, you know, devote my attention to uh, just a few things. But when it, when I came to academia in the U.S., of course, my life changed. Being in an academic environment, you're suddenly thrown into a world where you have so many different projects and with shifting deadlines, and of course, we're moving our attention 
uh, among all these different projects and deadlines trying to keep up. So yes, it was a cultural shift, but it was also that the nature of my job had shifted as well. And and I would also say I, I started I started UCI in the year 2000. And as the decade wore on, of course, we had social media came came on the scene. Facebook was invented in 2003. And then this was followed by a number of other well, the Social smartphone media. was right the in the smart, middle of that decade. Smartphone was invented in 2007. And there were just continually more and more sources of interruptions for us. So, you know, in the, in the 2000s, you know, the, the digital age just really took off. Well, your readers, they're, they're likely adults. But I think your target, though, and your concerns are directed to young adopters of digital devices. So as you describe, and as we know intuitively, right, that the development of their young brains is more affected, it's very affected by this digital loading. And the earlier the adoption, the more profound the impact. So how are you, Gloria, reaching the early young adopters with your important work? Well, uh, for one thing, I'm trying to communicate to students uh, you know, I I would hope that students can read my book or, you know, they can read some of the articles that cover this topic or or even even newspaper articles so that they can at least become aware of the potential dangers of spending so much time online, you know, immersed in, in a digital environment. And, you know, the fact that spending so much time on social media, checking it so often is it's it's not a healthy lifestyle. So I I would hope that young people can get the message that it's really important to consider your your offline life and to be able to nurture friendships and be able to explore conversations with people in the real world offline. And Emphasis with respect to healthy, it's the physiological, it's the social, it's the mental health. All those things are are you, what you take up in your book. Yes, that's that's right. And it, it's hard to disentangle that, right? Because it's all kind of tied in together. You know, if people, for example, if you're experiencing chronic stress over a long period of time, of course, it can affect our mental health, but it can also affect our physical health. And, you know, it, it stress has been linked to cardiac disease and a number of other very negative health outcomes. So it, it is all interconnected. Well, you do. You talk about some of the cardiac outcomes and you talk about cancer, but I'm not sure I saw that you can link this with the onset of dementia might be hastened by our digital choices. I I can't I can't make that claim. I I we don't know if there is any relationship between using digital devices and dementia. Um I there there's just not enough studies about it and I think the argument could potentially even be turned around and it might be the case that if people are keeping their minds active by say reading news or reading ebooks, perhaps this could even 
delay dementia or prevent it. So, you know, I, I cannot say that there's any causal attribution of using digital devices and dementia. But I know that geriatricians talk about stressors are certainly um, do have consequences that might bring on some kinds of earlier onsets of dementia. So I'm, it's a kind of an, a little, my, maybe a wayward syllogism, but it's something. Mm-hmm. That, but you also in your book talk about, though, when you're saying that maybe aging might be benefited by some of these devices for engaging the brain and all that. But you do caution, list, uh, caution readers, cautioning listeners now, about not using that digital access as a substitution for our memory banking of things that we need. Not, not always, don't always go straight to the, the web to find out what is it that you're trying to search for that, you know, the historic date, the fact, the, you know, all those things. And you're very concerned about people using that little smartphone brain to process that for them. I, I'm very concerned about that. I, I worry that people are losing their ability to do critical reasoning because it's just so easy to look up facts, you know, with our smartphones uh, or on our computers. I also worry that, you know, we've we've lost the ability to to navigate through the environment because we rely on GPS. I know I do. I I can barely drive someplace uh, without using my GPS, you know, if it's a place that I've never been, because I've I've been so reliant on GPS. And we also know from studies that the brain actually changes as a result of not using our capacity to be able to navigate through the environment. So, you know, it's not just the fact that we're becoming lazier, but there's a, there's actually uh, neurological changes as a result of not um, exercising our navigation capabilities. Well, I've been aware of that, Gloria, for some time. That about that GPS uh, sort of. Uh, I, I I pride myself on my geographic sense, and I I made an active choice many years ago not to rely on that. I mean, I've used it, you know, an just a very few times because of what you're telling us from your research is the outcome of overuse of that or extensive use. So it's, uh, those are the choices though you talk about, right? So yes. I don't know, but when you talk about capacity being refreshed and expanded though, can is it possible that you could perhaps use other means for getting where you need to go and n- negotiate those spaces without GPS and perhaps gain some of your geographic sense? Or is that a one-way ratchet effect? Well, what what did we do before GPS? We we used maps. So, you know, we would first, you know, we printed out directions from, from Google Maps. Uh, before that, we had paper maps. And before that, we talked to people and asked people for directions. So, um, and, and, you know, many people, uh, you know, if you take the time, you can form a mental model, uh, a mental map of an area, and then you can rely on that mental map for getting around. So we're, 
yes, there there are ways around GPS. Now, I'm not saying we should get rid of GPS because it's certainly a benefit, especially if it's an area where it's very confusing, a place you've never been before. Certainly, uh, GPS is very helpful. I'm just saying that, you know, probably we could stretch ourselves a little bit and not rely on GPS all the time. You know, there's probably instances where we we can figure it out. We we can figure out how to get somewhere without using GPS, especially if we've been to a place before. Uh, I know we're we're hesitant to do that because GPS is it's so efficient. You know, it's made our lives so much easier. Uh, but I'm just I'm just making the point that it has caused changes mm-hmm. in us with with this reliance. Uh, and again, I'm not saying throw away GPS. I'm just saying let's let's be aware that it has caused changes in how we move around in the world. Right. And and I just hasten to say that the few instances where I really absolutely had to use it, Gloria, there was no way I, I would still be looking for that today, 18 years later, if I hadn't had the GPS, those sort of one way only to get to a certain place. So I, I sure. absolutely understand that. Yeah. So for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Gloria Mark, UCI professor of informatics, talking about her latest book, Attention Span, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness, and Productivity. At the risk of seeming like I'm hopping around when we're talking about young brains developing affected by digital loading, there was a thing I had understood, and you can debunk this if you are in a position of knowing it, Gloria's. Is it true that whether tech titans are raising their own children aware of the downside of digital overload? Oh, that that I cannot answer. <laughs> but you've heard that so, though, right? Um, I I have heard of some cases. Yeah, I I don't know to what extent it's it's widespread. So I I I really don't know. I think I think it's it's a wise thing to do, uh, but I I really don't know to what extent it's it's widespread among executives. So Gloria, your book raises the matter of spreading of misinformation. Are you also concerned about disinformation intending to disorient, to flood the mind, adding another form of stress that can deplete our capacity? I don't remember the disinformation was mentioned, and I'm thinking that's even more pernicious than misinformation. Yeah, I'm I'm very concerned about that. And in fact, I'm especially concerned as we're entering a new era of AI, and it's going to be so much easier to spread uh, information that can, uh, you know, steer people down wrong paths. Uh, and I'm especially concerned because, you know, algorithms are just getting even more sophisticated, and information is targeted to people based on their profiles. And so this kind of disinformation and and misinformation can be targeted even more effectively as technology improves. And I'm very, very concerned about that. And I guess the part of disinformation is the micro-targeting aspect. You do mention micro-targeting, and I guess I'm concerned about micro-targeting because it's, it's not something that can be 
observed by, let's say, another party. It can't be. It's not there necessarily where there's polling going on. So it's a very sort of backdoor kind of intrusion and a, and a very personal one, an intrusion onto the digital users. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. So whenever people go on the internet, uh, we, we all leave digital traces, right? Depending on what sites we visit, what we click on, what we choose to like in our social media feeds. So we're just leaving all kinds of, you know, digital breadcrumbs and tech companies and ad companies scoop up all these breadcrumbs and they can create profiles about us, what we like, what we dislike, even, even our personalities. And this can be used to target information to us. So from the perspective of an advertiser, they want to target products and services that they think will respond to, that will enjoy. From a perspective of a social media company, they want to present us with feeds with content that they think we will like uh, because they'll keep our attention on the site. And of course, the longer we spend on a site, the more likely we are to click on an ad that's on that site. So do you have a personal example? I have a few personal examples where I thought, oh my goodness, I would not have been interested in that product. And it, it at that moment, it was released because of those data miners know when I may be more susceptible to a sale. And it was a, an article of clothing I never would have purchased. But at that moment that it popped up in the screen, I had to really work hard to realize, no, I'm being fed a product that uh, I, I'm being played right now. It's I'm not at all interested in it, but it, I was on a different level interested in. Do you have also your own personal experience with that, Gloria? Yeah, we, we are being played. So um, I I had the experience where I was looking at a pair of boots and uh, decided not to buy them. But then these boots followed me around on the internet. I would go to news sites, the boots would appear. I would go to social media, the boots would appear. Uh, they they were just following me around on the internet. And, you know, they were, it's relentless. Uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's a human being trying to sell me boots, I can just tell them, go away, leave me alone. But, you know, on the internet, you you can't do that. <laughs> and so uh, I, I did not buy the boots, but it was it was very annoying to see them popping up everywhere. And I, I just can't resist mentioning, it was about a week or two ago on Ty Rizdahl's marketplace, there was a, I don't remember the what business the guest was in, but they they were pinned down by that marketing campaign and they they got some kind of a custom lego that looks like their spouse they thought it'd be a great anniversary present but by the time that anniversary present arrived it wasn't the person wasn't in the same mood anymore and he he was so puzzled and and the obvious question was well what did your wife think of that that gesture and he said no it didn't land at all so it's sort of like that it's a very that micro-targeting is so pernicious, so insidious. Well, yeah. at the outset, it might seem like we're dealing with a limited capacity with our attention spans that they're getting depleted. But you talk about the broaden and build theory. Give us that kind of reassuring capacity that we have. 
Yeah, I mean, that basically, uh, this is research that shows that when people feel positive, they can do more. And what the researchers did was they brought people into a laboratory and they introduced films that could affect people's moods. And in one case, they were shown films that made them happy, uplifting films. In another condition, people were shown films that really were depressing, <laughs> you know, watching a horrific accident. And then right after, they had people do a series of tasks. Uh, one of the tasks was simply asking people to come up with all the different ways that might you might use a particular object. And those people who were exposed to the the films that put them in a good mood were able to come up with many more ideas. So they they were they were more creative. They were more effective in how they were using their thinking. And you know, there's other research that shows that, you know, when people are in a conflict with someone, and I mentioned this earlier in the program, you have more ways that you can act. You know, you can think of, for example, a diplomatic strategy to mm -hmm. get out of this situation. Whereas if you're in a negative mood, you, you might just react back to the person. And that's absolutely the worst thing we can do is mirror negative behavior, right? What we instead should do is try to counteract negative behavior with, with positive behavior. So, um, yeah, so the broaden and build theory just shows basically that when people feel positive, they can do more. And to extend this to our daily lives, you know, we should be thinking about when we're using our devices to not get ourselves exhausted and in bad moods such that it's it's going to affect our work and, and affect our relationships with people. Well, I think this book is an intervention. It's a little bit of a psychotherapy in a way that gives us a pause to see that we we have some choices. Well, I'll get into the whole agency bit uh, later, but it's very therapeutic for framing, as you say, and flagging these moments, these junctures we're at so that we don't fall into the negativity, the burden that like what that particular scary film poses us and that you know we have another way another path to pursue we can just not keep reaching and you know to click and that sort of thing so does the agency which i'm going to have you expand on a little bit more that you talk about does it serve to push back on the algorithms that influence our behavior could our volition our gaining agency and our more intentional consumption patterns, would that have some effect on algorithms on some level? Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I can talk about ways that we can gain agency. So, you know, during the pandemic, UCI offered a course on mindfulness. And I took the course and I found it very valuable. And I realized that some of the ideas of mindfulness could actually be applied to what we do when we use our devices. So I talked earlier about how we have automatic attention. And there's so many things we do when we're on our computers and phones that are just automatic, automatic responses. 
And it turns out that half the time we distract ourselves. So half the time distractions come from inside of us. They're not coming from external notifications or, uh, you know, hearing the phone ring or people coming into our office. So, you know, we have to think about the fact that, you know, yeah, we can, we can control our own, uh, our own behaviors. So how does this mindfulness apply to when we use our devices? So I, I call it gaining meta awareness, which is an awareness of what we're doing in the moment. And as we're using our devices, I, what I do is I probe myself. And when I have an urge to check the news because I'm a news junkie, I will probe myself and say, do I really need to check the news right now? Why do I have this need to check the news? It's usually because I'm bored or because I'm procrastinating, in which case I can reflect on it. I can say, okay, I'm going to work 30 more minutes and then I can reward myself and check the news. If I see a notification, I can do the same kind of probing. I see a notification of, say, breaking news in the New York Times. And my urge is to click on that notification. But I can I can probe myself and say, do I need to click on that right now? And chances are no. And then I can come up with a quick plan. Okay, I'm going to work a little bit longer. And then I'm going to check the news site. So, you know, meta-awareness is, it's a skill. And the more we practice it, the easier it becomes, and it it just becomes natural to practice it. So when I'm on my devices, I'm just continually probing myself to become more self-aware of what I'm doing and, you know, distracting myself. Or if I receive a notification, I usually try to turn notifications off. So I'm I'm not bothered by that. That's key. That's so key. I, I was yeah. just talking about that when I was talking about your book yesterday and that, and I just stop the phone. I just turn it all. I power it down every night. Yeah. But that's, that's great. Like, when do I decide to do that? That's like, that's my agency is how, how early am I going to shut it down? But back to what you're talking about, those unconscious, the internal distractions, unconscious decisions. You, you talk about unconscious mechanisms, which reminded me a lot of how addicts uh, talk about their choosing to drink before they even make the first move to a drink. It's reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are similarities, of course, you know, when, when we get habituated to do something. Yes. Okay. So back to in along with this agency, as we're drawing down, you conclude with the future of attention and that digital technologies have become an appendage to our minds. I'm quoting directly. That was, I mean, as far as the kind of anatomical, physiological discussion that you give so richly and and so accessibly, that digital technologies have become an appendage to our minds was a really riveting kind of image to to start winding your text down with us. (laughs) Yes, it it is an appendage. To, to us. Um, it's, you know, our smartphones, they are a member of a group when we have a conversation. 
and I do this myself, you know, you'll be talking and then a question comes up. So you immediately turn to your smartphone to figure out, and it, it could be some fact, even a minor fact. And so the smartphones become, you know, you're in a group of two people, the smartphone becomes that third person in the conversation. So, and, you know, we have become very reliant on our devices, not, not just in uh, helping us in conversations. We talked about GPS. Um, you have a whim of something that you might buy. You've got your smartphone with you. You can immediately, you know, click on it and purchase it. So it's just, uh, you know, really part of our lives. It's, it's hard to separate from it. So you talk about developing healthy relationships with tech changes on, and that, that needs to happen. You, you admit that it, it's going to be on the individual, the organizational and the social level. So that, that tall order, you're leaving us with that and that we're still inventing the digital world. And you talked about how artificial intelligence is becoming more, more broadly expansively applied. So it's where those, uh, those are some big headwinds in yes. how you're winding down, leaving us with the future of attention. Because I, I had, I was involved in a project editing a book for a faculty member, and he earnestly wanted me to check out the G chat version of that. And I, I didn't know where to go with that after I'd been so painstakingly editing his book. And I thought, I don't even want to bring bring that element in. And then he, on his own, realized that was he, <laughs> the error of his ways. But it's, it's, this, uh, it's a tall order that we're looking at how this digital world is still inventing itself. It's, and we're, you say it's, we're early in this era. We are, we, you know, when you think about it, the internet didn't gain widespread popularity until the mid 1990s. And even for many people, not until the beginning of 2000. So, you know, we're we're in the wild west of the digital age. We're still trying to figure things out. But, you know, it didn't take very long for tech companies and advertising companies to enter, you know, into the fray and, and get involved and figure out that, you know, people's attention, it, it can be monetized, it can be manipulated. So that's why it's so important for people to become aware and develop their own agency. People can, we can do things. We don't have to feel like we're pawns or victims of tech companies, but we can be in control. And so that's that's what I'm urging people to, to think about is taking back control of your attention. Well, we're consuming so much everything digital and all the time. And we've got this, you're trying to assure us in your book that agency balance refreshes capacity. It's on the way if we choose accordingly, or as I'm, I'm going to entitle this interview, this broadcast bandwidth, guard it like your life depends on it. I would love that. Love that title. Well, uh, just a few more. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, we didn't we... get to the road attention and um, the tension traps. I wanted to bring up that there was something very uncanny about you bringing over a hundred year old sources. Some of them went you know, <laughs> hundreds of years and there is not, there is something it's telling us that they were very 
you know, focused and deliberate and all that. And those sources that they're, they're still meaningful and, but they're old and it's, is it, you know, are we losing some capacity for some of that, you know, that deep thinking and all? I mean, there's I, a lot in that, how you drew on those older sources. Yeah, I, I always like to go back to original sources because a lot of studies that have been done after are simply tweaking the studies. And I, I like to go back to the, the really original grand findings. For example, the Zygarnik effect is, you know, this was done a long time ago. The, the idea that we tend to remember better tasks that are unfinished. And, you know, when we're in a world yes. where we're multitasking and we're continually shifting our attention, maybe it's no wonder that we're distracted because we keep thinking of those unfinished tasks and the fact we have to get back to them and it creates tension for us. So, um, yeah, some of these these older studies are just, you know, really profound. And, um, you know, they've been, people have built on them and they've been tweaked. They've been done in, in different kinds of circumstances. But I really like to go back to the original sources. And those unfinished tasks are like that movie that's a drag on our energy and our attention. So that that's a, and then I wanted to figure out, because I saw that you'd been at Boeing in 1998, and I'm not to overshare too much, but I will, um, that when you talked about Maya Angelou's big and little mind sorts of activities, I remember, I, I knew, I was engaged to um, the son of the Boeing CEO in the 70s. And so, wow. and, uh, but and, and that's the part that overshare it's done, but I would watch that CEO when he'd come home and he'd boom, he'd play rounds of solitaire. It's like the little mind thing. Like, but yes. I don't know what he was doing during the day, multitasking his way with sales, research and development, all those things that he was, all those plates he kept up in the air. But, but that was how he came down with that solitaire game. That was her little mind. That's right. So, um, just for the listeners, Maya my, my Angelou talked about her big mind, where, which she used for her deep thought and her creative work. But then she would pull back and she would use what she called her little mind, where she would do things like playing crossword puzzles. It, it was a way to let her mind relax. And it was a way for her to replenish her mental resources and so there's so many things we can do by evoking little mind. You know, we can do rote kinds of tasks like crossword puzzles. But, you know, even um, taking a walk is it just a great way to replenish. Um, but it, it also turns out from our research that when people do these kinds of rote things, they have a calming effect and they make people feel positive. So this this Boeing CEO you know, he, I can imagine he was exhausted and stressed at the end of the day. And so, you know, playing, um, was it solitaire yeah. is, is, was a way for him to just kind of calm down, let his mind kind of relax, uh, and, you know, maybe help him detach from what he did during that day. And he was a jigsaw puzzle fan too. I that's mm. but I, I saw here that the Zygarnik effect. Thanks for bringing that up. And I didn't want to make it sound so wide-eyed, but I wanted to give people a, 
and agencies that they can re-engineer where the algorithms were, you know, preying on them. But and, and I think you answered that, but I'm um, I'm not I'm not certain certain because if it seems like the algorithms are an asymmetric warfare uh, advantage, and so I don't know if is, it is. I mean, is it possible we can actually re undo the algorithms and reconfigure them by our choices? Well, because uh, you talked about our own bandwidth, but you didn't talk yeah. about that external system preying yeah. on us. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. Um, we can we can fool algorithms. Um, we we would have to put in a little bit of effort to do it. Remember, algorithms are constructing profiles about us based on our digital behavior. So you can do things like like everything. You know, you click liking everything or like nothing so that you're depriving the algorithm of getting information about what you're doing. Um, you can go to sites that you might not ordinarily go to. Um, I know that there are some browsers which are designed to, you know, give you privacy so that tech and ad companies won't be able to see your your travels through the Internet. So there, there are things we can do to um, to trick the algorithms. I tried to do that, Gloria, once, and I just searched bubonic plague. And the assumption was from the web that I was writing a research paper. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah. Yep. And I thought, I'll, I'll make it think that I'm dealing with, I'm at my doctor's office and I've got that, you know, that diagnosis. Well, I... Really, thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations on this really valuable book, Gloria. Thank you so much, Claudia, for having me. This was a great discussion. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you for that. My guest was Gloria Mark, UCI professor of informatics, bringing us her latest book, Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. It's published by Hanover Square Press, available at her website, GloriaMark.com, or your favorite independent book dealer, including the bookstore on the campus in the faculty book corner. Well, actually, I'm trying to get that book on those shelves. It's not easy, though, as Barnes & Noble has their own procedures, but we're working on it. So that's my wrap. Next week, Jackie Mentor with Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees will return in advance of her organization's June 20th World Refugee Day open house. And a whole different tack I'm going to go with, Melissa Gill, prior to the book convention later this summer in Anaheim, celebrating diversity in romance and the romance genre post-Dobbs. Congratulations, Class of 23. You've endured most of your years here during the age of COVID. Those are some heavy headwinds, and I'm sorry. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.